Well, hi everyone, this is Deb. And this is Beth. And we wanted to take a moment to tell you about our brand new podcast called Dying to be Found. Beth. Yeah? If you were to describe our true crime podcast to people, what would you say? Well, I tell people that we are two sisters who are intrigued by crime. We also try to delve into stories that we think our listeners can relate to. Deb, how would you describe Dying to be Found? I'd like to tell people that our podcast is open to the interpretation of our listeners. We don't always discuss big names in crime. We also talk about missing persons who are just dying to be found. But then again, there are definitely criminals that are dying to be found by the police. We're always open to whatever stories we report and really want our listeners to take an active role in why we do this. Beth, do you have anything else to add? No, I think we covered it really well. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And please visit us at our website at dying to be found and on social media at Dying to be Found. Welcome back to week 46 at the True Crime B&B. Hello everybody, I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And today I'm the first guy. You're the bad guy. Say what it is, okay? <laughs> Alright, I'm the bad guy. Yes. Today I'm going to do something that some of my friends in Northern Ohio may have heard about in 2021 because it was the anniversary the 100th anniversary oh. of this unsolved murder that happened in Parma, Ohio. Okay. And in fact, it was an unsolved murder of two teachers in Parma, Ohio before it was even a city. It was a little township. But let me go back to the beginning. Okay. So Parma, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland, those of you who don't live in that area may not know that. Mm-hmm. It now has a population of over 81,000 people, and it is the seventh largest city in Ohio. It's a middle-class, working-class suburb, kind of an ethnic melting pot, lots of Italian, Eastern European, a lot of Indian families. It's made up of proud, working-class families. Mm-hmm. But in 1921, it was a tiny rural township with farms, orchards, the U.S. Census from 1920 shows just over 2,300 residents. Wow. It wouldn't even be incorporated as a village until 1924 and then not as a city until 1931. It had Parma Center School, which was a single room, smaller than a house. The principal was a 38-year-old woman named Louise Wolfe, and the only other teacher was 24-year-old Mabel Foote. Clara Louise Wolfe was born in Columbus, Ohio on October 14, 1882. All of the news articles call her by Louise, so it appears that's the name she went by, so I'll call her Louise. Okay. Louise had been orphaned as a child in the 1890s when there wasn't a safety net for kids whose parents died, and so she and her sister Catherine were passed around the family for much of her childhood, just trying to find somewhere that somebody could take care of them. Mm. Her youngest sister, Edith, had been adopted by another family in 1895 when Louise was 13. Although Louise and Catherine had frequently visited Edith at the home of her new family, they were never allowed to tell her that they were her sisters. So they would just stop by acting like friends of the family, but they really just wanted to keep track of their little sister. So the family just didn't want her to know that she was adopted? Apparently. Hmm. Well, that's how it used to be. They didn't always tell kids that they had been adopted. Louise took these experiences and her empathy and her love for trying to make children's lives better And she went out into the world to help children who might be going through difficult things. Mm -hmm. Louise was a single woman. She lived with a female roommate, and she was in her third year of teaching. She was in her first year as the Parma Center School principal. 
Mabel Estelle Foote was born in Brooklyn Heights, Ohio, which is also a Cleveland suburb, on April 23, 1896. Her father was Joel Lindsley Foote Sr., and her mother was Ella Martha Osmond Foote. Mabel had a sister named Millie and three brothers, Joel, Aaron, and Kenneth. She still lived at home with her family and had been a recent graduate of Baldwin-Wallace, which is also up in that area. Mabel was in her first year of teaching. School teachers at that time earned an average of about $30 a month, and if they cleaned the schoolroom so that custodians didn't have to be brought in, they were paid about an extra $3 more per month. School got out at 3.30 p.m. every weekday, but Louisa Mabel would stay each day until 5 o'clock to grade papers and also clean up the classroom for the next day. They almost always walked together to catch the 5.30 streetcar named the Dinky. That was what they locally called it, which took them to their homes. Okay. The streetcar, the Dinky Line, was two miles down Bean Road, which is now known as Ridgewood Drive. Bean Road was named after the bean farms nearby, as it was populated only by rural farmland and some apple orchards. Old-timey Parma really does sound like a fictional town in a book, does it not? (laughs) They took the dinky down to Bean Road. (laughs) Pretty much, yes. God. Anybody that lives in the Parma area now or ever lived there will know the intersection of State Road and Ridgewood Drive. And that's where this story took place, back when it was in the middle of nowhere. On Wednesday, February 16, 1921, Louise and Mabel left the school at 5 o'clock per their regular routine. And the man who owned the property across the street from the school happened to see them leaving and heading toward the streetcar line. Mabel was carrying an overnight case, which typically meant she was going to stay with a cousin overnight rather than go home to stay with her immediate family Mm -hmm. and her younger brothers where she still lived. So Mabel's family didn't worry that night when she never arrived home because they assumed she was safely at the cousin's house. Got it. The next morning before 8.30 a.m., three school kids, a 16-year-old girl, her 14-year-old brother, and another 6-year-old boy were walking along icy, muddy Bean Road and found two heaps of something that looked like piles of clothing along the road. The children couldn't quite understand what they were seeing, and so being children, they ran up to investigate what they had found, thinking, wow, maybe that's something fun for me. Yeah. Well, it wasn't fun for them because upon getting close enough to see, what they had thought was piles of clothing were actually two people beaten so badly that they weren't really recognizable. The three children screamed and ran onward to the school where they thought they were going to find safety with their teachers. Mm. At the school, the other students were waiting outside because the teachers hadn't arrived to open the doors and warm up the one-room school building. The police were called and the children helped them to find the bodies. The police unit in Parma was tiny. It was Parma Township, so the police unit in Parma Township was tiny with no detective on staff, and the police chief, Frank Smith, knew they were unequipped to handle such a gruesome crime. They knew their limitations and called in assistance from the Cleveland police and the Cuyahoga County Sheriff. Police arrived and identified the victims as Louise and Mabel. They also found a bloody fence rail near the bodies. The wood of the fence rail had both blonde and brunette hair clinging to it, and police recognized that it must be the murder weapon. The women had not been robbed, and both still wore jewelry, including diamond rings. Their clothing was torn, some of it torn from their bodies, but they had not been sexually assaulted. Or at least the police of 1921 didn't think they had been. Yeah. Hmm. Probably the torn clothing had resulted from ferociously fighting back against the killer or killers. It was theorized around town or around the township that it might have begun as a robbery attempt, 
but that the women were so resistant and fought so hard that the robber might have gone overboard and began hitting them with the fence rail, trying to subdue them. Police suggested that the brutality of the attack came from what looked like a personal motive, but there were no clues or tips that hinted at the person who would do this. Mabel's father blamed what he called tramps, meaning vagrant people without settled homes, and they typically traveled on foot from place to place, so they'd probably be long gone by now. Others speculated that one of the women may have been approached and turned down a suitor, causing them to seek revenge, because we hear that all the time. I mean, that's a story that's unfortunately never going to die. So. Yeah, as old as time. Yep. The police threw out the unhelpful idea that unspecified maniacs must have killed them. All that did was terrify the township, right? Yeah. It appeared from the footprints that the two women had fought next to one another, protecting one another for approximately 600 feet of distance down Bean Road. Their footprints stayed next to one another, probably from the point where they were first accosted to the point where they fell. It was publicly concluded that either of the women would have likely been able to escape on their own, but that they refused to leave each other's side, and so neither of them escaped. While he's hitting her, maybe I'll run off. Well, maybe but that's they what they meant. Like, if one of them had run off, they probably would have survived either or. They worded everything weird back then, so it's hard to say. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> and they added so much speculation into mm-hmm. news stories at that time. Yeah, it wasn't fact-based. It was opinion-based and then with some facts thrown in the middle. Yeah, it, news articles at that time were very salacious. Mm-hmm. So, as you may have realized, 1920s newspapers printed a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense and didn't necessarily help the factual understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. One of the women's umbrellas had been broken at the tip, so it looked as if one of them was using the umbrella as a defensive weapon. Mm-hmm. Mabel's overnight case was open and a piece of clothing inside it had blood on it, so it looked like she may have swung that. To hit the assailant. And the clasp opened or something in the process. Got it. So they see that it clearly was a very vicious battle Mm -hmm. between these women and this person or persons. It never was. I was going to say, this doesn't sound like one man to me. Also, Mabel's watch, which was found 150 feet from her body, had literally stopped running at 5.15 p.m., confirming an approximate time of the attack. And I don't know if it stopped running because of an impact or it fell into a puddle that always gives me chills Yeah, when something like that happens. I don't know if the attack started at 5.15, but that's when she was hit hard enough for her watch to fall off. Mm-hmm. And then they kept running. So that was right after they were last seen at 5 o'clock. Yeah. Then, wow. Because okay. they had to walk a good distance down Bean Road to mm-hmm. get to the dinky. Mm-hmm. And if they had a 600-foot battle zone that they could see in footprints down Bean Road... And her watch was only found 150 feet from her body. That means 450 feet they battled with this person before her watch fell off. So it may have been five minutes after five when they first were attacked. Deep footprints in the mud ran from the crime scene into the woods. No houses were nearby. Dogs were brought in to try to track the killer's scent, but weren't able to get very far before losing the scent. But the township rallied thinking they were heroes, and over a hundred men from every local farm came out, searching nearby barns, shacks, and outhouses. They hacked through undergrowth and shrubbery, they went through swamps and forests, hoping to find someone hiding in there, or hoping to find some 
sort of a clue that would tell them who may have done this. Or like some sign that somebody's been camping there or something, I guess. Yeah. I mean... What they actually did was traipse through the crime scene searching for the killer immediately after this happened, and they destroyed any evidence that might have been at the crime scene or nearby. And soon it was impossible to tell which footprints had belonged to the killer or killers and which ones belonged to the searchers. So by the time the Cleveland police detectives actually arrived, there was not much left in the way of a crime scene to evaluate. So they did all this before the detectives even showed up. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Because in my mind, I thought this was after the police had been out there and seen the scene, but Mm -mm. just the Parma police had been there, not the actual... Word of mouth, it got around that two teachers had been killed on this road, and... The entire town came out and started traipsing around through everything and just destroyed the whole crime scene. The Cleveland police got there and there was really nothing left to evaluate about the crime scene. Investigators were at their wits end. They finally ended up going door to door, fingerprinting every man in the township. The Cuyahoga County Sheriff, O.B. Stannard, released the theory that the murders were likely the work of a man standing over six feet tall. But there's no evidence given to back up this description. He's just assuming that because he assumes one man overtook both of these women, he must have been a big guy. But there was no eyewitness of a man over six feet tall attacking these women. See what I mean? It's very brash, (laughs) ballsy to just be like, well, I can't see how anybody smaller than that could have done this. So clearly that's the truth. Right. Well, no. Exactly. There are possibilities that are not the normal. (laughs) Exactly. A woman named Gladdy Green provided a tip that before the time of the murders, she had seen two bareheaded men walking rapidly along Ridge Road, which intersects Bean Road, now Ridgewood Drive, a few hundred feet away. And by bareheaded, she meant they weren't wearing hats, because back in that time, it was very common for men to wear hats when they were out and about. J.T. Loader, a local farmer, had seen two bareheaded men, again, no hats, walking near Bean Road shortly after 6 p.m., so that would be about 45 minutes after the time of what they think the murders happened. Okay. And Robert Barrows from Pleasant Valley claimed that he had picked up two men a short distance from the crime scene and drove them in what they called his machine to Ridge and Para Roads. And I don't know what a machine is in that time. I don't know if that was a car or a tractor but like a tractor. Yeah. <laughs> well, in 1921, not everybody has a car. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. So it might have been a car. Maybe that was this horse's name. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no one is certain whether all of these sightings were the same two men. But it does seem kind of fishy. Yeah. Because Gladdy Green saw two men before the murders. J.T. Loader saw two men after the murders. And Robert Barrows picked up two men and drove them away from the crime scene. Two men who had also paid a visit to a nearby farm were tracked down in questions. But these were not the same two men that these people had seen. And it turned out they had been at the farmer's house on Tuesday, not on Wednesday. And their movements thereafter had been verified. So they did do a little bit of police work and ruled these guys out. Hmm. A motorcycle with a sidecar and carrying three men was reportedly seen at the intersection of Bean Road and State Road shortly before the murder. It was reported that two of the men dismounted the motorcycle and walked down Bean Road towards the scene of the crime while the third man waited on the motorcycle. The motormen of the streetcar line were questioned in an attempt to identify anyone who might have gotten on the streetcars shortly after the murder. Mm -hmm. So these are all individual accounts. But none of them really panned out. I mean, 
how are you going to find those people? If they don't live in the area, Yeah. how would you ever track them down? Unless somebody happened to be like, oh, yeah, that's Gary from up the way. Like, you know? Yeah. None of the motormen of the streetcars had any identifications of anybody that they said, oh, this guy got on afterwards and his hand was cut and, mm-hmm. you know, he was really muddy on his shoes. That's true, though. All these people coming forward, it doesn't sound like any of them ever said, oh, yeah, I saw these two guys and one of them was injured. It sounds like they were just walking. Yeah. Normally. And right. you'd think and after the, such a vicious fight, they would at least have a limp or something. It sounds like these women put up a hell of a fight. Oh, I'm sure they did. But he's coming at them with a fence post, and probably once you get knocked in the head, you're not going to fight your best. Mm-hmm. The school children also reported that they had overheard a conversation that Louise and Mabel had had in the classroom the day before their murders. Mabel had told Louise that a strange man had approached her on Bean Road, asking for directions to the streetcar line. But she had not given Louise any kind of physical description, and she didn't really seem to express any worry about it, and the police couldn't make any headway with that because they didn't even have a description of the man. Yeah, it's so vague. Yeah, so it might have just been a regular guy just asking for directions to the streetcar. Mm -hmm. The school was closed for at least a week after the murders, and it was also decided that the replacement teachers for this small rural school would be men to avoid setting up women in a place that they wouldn't feel safe. They did do post-mortem exams, and they turned up that there was skin under the fingernails of one of the women, and I don't know which one, but that was unusable in 1921. And the police no longer have any of the records or evidence that was collected. The only information available is from old news articles, which is where I got it. There are no crime scene photos. There are a few photos of the bodies laying on the road, but they're from far. Yeah. They're not gruesome. It's basically what the children saw before they figured out what they were looking at. God, it's always children finding these bodies, and it's like... Did the adults ever leave their houses in these towns? <laughs> Apparently they did, and sometimes without hats. God. The murder weapon is gone. I don't. Nobody knows what happened to it. In all likelihood, the perpetrator would have died long before now because mm-hmm. this happened 101 years ago, and they probably were at least late teens to early 20s, so they would be like 120 years old now mm-hmm. if they still lived. Mabel was buried in her family's private cemetery in Brooklyn Heights. Louise was also buried in Brooklyn Heights, but it was in Brooklyn Heights Cemetery. The murders made national news, and before long, there was a $10,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the killer, but to no avail. Even with a $10,000 reward, which was a huge amount of money at that time, Mm -hmm. no one had any clues. No one came forward with information. Mabel's uncle, Charles Foote, went out every night with his flashlight, waiting for the killer to return to the scene of the crime. But all this accomplished was having people looking strangely at Charles and wondering if Charles might have actually been the killer. Other suspects over the years included a man named Arthur Eilenfeld, who was known around the area as a peeping Tom and whose fingerprints were, what they said, similar to the ones found at the scene and on the bodies. Hmm. Yeah, that just tells me that they didn't know how to identify whether fingerprints matched or not. Yeah, it sounds like they just looked at it and said, yep, that's definitely a fingerprint. But you have to remember, (laughs) I don't think it was long before 1921 when they actually started using fingerprints to identify people. Yeah. It was not long before that. So this was still a new science at that time. Well, yeah, and that's kind of like how they don't have the evidence of the DNA under the fingernails and the fence posts. I can imagine how in the 60 years before DNA technology ever even was talked about, that would get lost. 
But even though Eilenfeld appeared to have significant knowledge of the crime scene, he was labeled, and I hate this term, he's labeled locally as a mental defective and was eventually deemed criminally insane and was committed to the Lima State Hospital. So either you're mentally defective or you are insane, but it doesn't mean you're both. Yeah. At that time, it was like if you had any kind of intellectual disability, they just sent you to the mental hospital. Then you're, there's, you're beyond hope. There's no saving you. Yeah. and Let's lock you away for life. Yeah, it was just such a blanket condemnation of people at that time. Another man actually confessed to the crime a few years later. His name was Fred Goatling, who had a criminal record that went back 16 years prior to the murders. And two years after Louise and Mabel were murdered, Goatling was arrested in 1923 for the murder of a man in Cleveland named Harry Keim. Goatling, like Eilenfeld, was deemed to be insane and was also sent to the Lima State Hospital. Goatling was discharged in spring of 1922. During the investigation, Goatling's confession included some crime scene details that would not have been available by reading the newspaper. Dr. W.H. Barbu from the Lima State Hospital said regarding Goatling, he was not insane when they brought him here, and he was not insane when discharged. So, he looks like a good suspect to me. So, did they ever reveal what he might have known from the crime scene that wasn't publicly released? They didn't because the police at that time either told you way more than they should have, or they didn't tell you anything. Hmm. And I think they didn't tell him anything about that. Another suspect was arrested in 1927, so six years later, after having been identified as a man seen by another guy named James Garrity as the man he saw standing in front of a Cleveland restaurant a few days after the murder. This man's face and arm had been bandaged, and it immediately made him think of the murders. Garrity claimed that he again saw the same man in the vicinity of the crime scene acting suspiciously after that. This suspect's name wasn't released, although he was reported to have gone under five different aliases and was accused of having molested school children, including a 14-year-old girl who identified him. But he was released and not charged after his alibi was confirmed. Nobody was ever brought to trial. In 1932, during the Great Depression, the Women's Civic League of Brooklyn used their precious funds to erect a memorial to honor the two murdered teachers. The memorial, I understand, still exists in Brookside Park on West 25th Street, along with a fountain that was later added by the Cuyahoga County teachers and a bench that was later added by Cleveland teachers. Wrapping up Parma school history a little bit, Mabel and Louise were murdered in February of 1921. The new high school on Ridge Road and three additional schools opened their doors eight months later in October 1921. So all those schools were already under construction at the time these teachers were murdered. So if this hadn't happened when it did, they probably would have closed the little school and the teachers would have been sent to one of the bigger schools and it probably never would have happened. Well, they probably have more cars closer to the area because more people are going to be... I don't think that the new high school was very far from where it happened. Mm -hmm. That new school building, which is near what they call Byers Field, which is the main location for home football games, basically for all the high schools of the district and St. Ignatius, later became the board office for Parma City School District. And so that new high school building became the Parma City School District board offices, and then it was torn down in 2006. Since 1921, the district has grown from Little Parma Central School to eight elementary schools, three middle schools, and three high schools, including Normandy, Parma Senior, and Valley Forge. And remember Edith 
Louise's little sister, who was adopted out to another family, mm-hmm. and Louise and her sister Catherine were not allowed to visit her, or were allowed to visit her, but not allowed to tell her that they were her sisters. In the days following Louise's murder, Edith was finally told that she had sisters and that Louise was one of them. And I hope that despite the tragedy of losing her as soon as she got her, mm-hmm. I hope that Edith would have been gratified to know that Louise and Catherine always loved her. And they tried to be near her in whatever way they were able. Oh, that's horrible, though. It's horrible, but she would have remembered that her sisters were visiting her even when she was little. Yeah. So she would have known. They always loved me. They never forgot about me. But in the end, there was no justice for Louise Wolfe and Mabel Foote. My personal thought, it was probably Fred Goatling. He had the criminal history. He confessed to it. He described things at the scene that weren't in the newspaper. He axe-murdered a guy two years later. And although he was sent to the Lima State Hospital as being criminally insane, the doctor there said he was not insane. Not when he arrived and not when he was discharged. And how long did... He was only at the hospital for a couple months, right? Oh, yeah, it was like a year at the most. I think if the misguided local farmers hadn't taken up pitchforks and torches and described the crime scene, Mm -hmm. the Cleveland detectives might have arrived there and been able to collect evidence, and they might have been able to catch the killer. But unfortunately, they were not. And I do have some photos that I will put on Instagram. I've got a picture of the little schoolhouse. I've got some pictures of the memorial that was made for them. And I've got some pictures of Louise and Mabel. Mm-hmm. That is all I have about the 1921 Parma Center School murders. It's really sad. And it does make me happy, though, that all the teachers came together and got them a memorial. Because, well, it's kind of like with architect mayhem for you. You know what I mean? Where something horrible happens, and even though you've never met that person before, you connect to them. Because it's like, well, we must have some things in common because we have the same path in life, you know? That's right. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about the machete attack in Columbus, Ohio in 2016. And I'm calling it that because the restaurant itself had a lot of hardship afterwards. I'll tell you the name. I just don't want to name an episode after it and bring more attention to what happened there, if that makes sense. Yeah. We'll start out on February 11th, 2016 at 5.20 p.m. 30-year-old Mohammed Barry walked into the Nazareth restaurant in Columbus, Ohio. He walked up to an employee and asked where the owner of the restaurant was from originally, as he had an Israeli flag hanging on the wall. So the Israeli flag outside the restaurant. Yes. Mohammed comes in and sees that flag and says, oh, well, is the owner of the restaurant from Israel? And then he proceeded to ask about what kind of food they served and whatnot. The employee he was talking to said, yes, the owner is from Israel and we serve mostly Middle Eastern stuff, but we have some substitutions if you're not into what we have. Okay. And then the patron said, okay, well, I'll be back later maybe and I'll think about what I want to order. Okay. So at that point, Barry left the restaurant and went back out to his car in the parking lot. Around 30 minutes later, however, Barry returned, this time wielding a machete and Another long knife, not as long as a machete, though. Okay. God. At this time in the restaurant, there were a total of 20 people present, including the employees. And with absolutely no warning, Mohammed made eye contact with the first person he saw. So literally the booth right next to the front door. It was a couple that they were both 43 years old and they had been sitting facing outside of the window. So it sounds like he kind of came up behind them. The man of the couple looked up and made eye contact with him, and that's when Mohammed started attacking him from behind with the machete. Oh, my God. 
This couple was 43-year-old Debbie and Gerald Russell. Can you imagine? Just sitting there eating a meal at a restaurant. And you look up and it's just coming at you. It's like James Porritt on the subway. Yes. Yeah. For no reason. You have no idea why this guy's doing this. And it's got to be completely unreal for the longest time. Yes. just, I must be in a dream, you know? Ugh, a nightmare. Gerald saw the machete coming down. He said throughout the entire attack, he thought he was being hit with a baton, like a police baton, where it stretches out and it's metal. We've heard that before. Mm Mm-hmm. And he literally said at no point he felt no pain other than like a bruising pain as it came down on him. He was hit a couple of times. Barry was aiming for his head. However, Gerald had the presence of mind to lift his hands up, and that's what took the brunt of the attack. Oh, my God. Yeah, but his hands were probably destroyed. His wife, Debbie, still also confused, stood up and started screaming at the attacker, telling him to get off of her husband. And so he then turned on her and hit her, she's not even sure how many times, either four or five times, also aiming for her head. But she also, her hands took the brunt of that attack. Mm, Damn. Moving to the next table over, Barry, and it's not really known if he struck him on purpose, like he was aiming for this man, or if he was like a back swing. Like in his back swing, yeah. Yeah. So Barry, at that point, struck a third victim, Neil McMeekin. Next, he turned his attention to a man named Bill Foley, who was a musician who performed at this restaurant, Nazareth, every week. He was really good friends with the owner of the restaurant. Right. Bill was not even supposed to be there yet because he wasn't supposed to take the stage until 6.30 p.m. that evening, and this was happening about 5.50 in the evening. But because he was best friends with the owner, he always came early, ate dinner there, and then performed. And that's what he was doing. He was actually the only one who had enough of a view of the restaurant watching these other three people get injured, where now he knew what was happening. Right. So he's the one who tried to fight him the most. So he could see the man coming up to him, and he attempted to fight him. He threw him over the table. He was wrestling back and forth. And he kept trying to beat him in the hand so he would loosen up his grip on the machete And once they could get the machete away from him, they could hold him down and call police. That's what his goal was here. And in the meantime, he had no idea how injured he was, and I'll get to that. But the third man, Neil McMeekin, who had been accidentally hit with the backswing, he saw that Bill was losing his fight with the attacker and decided to jump on him with a chair that he had been sitting in and swung at him, got him off of him. And then at this point, the employee that he had talked to when he first came in came out with a metal bat and chased him out of the restaurant. Okay. And that was the extent of the attack. Okay. Okay? So we have four people injured. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just, like, overwhelmed because this happened right next to me. I'm like, ah, okay. I know. I know. You remember when it happened. Yep. This restaurant is in a strip mall, so there's a big communal parking lot, and that's where he had parked his car. So he went ahead, jumped into his Toyota Corolla, which was in that lot, and then took off down the street before the police could arrive. Did anybody see what he left in? Yeah, they got his license plate number taken down before he took off. Okay. In his attempt to get away from the scene, however, Mohammed Barry crashed into a Mercedes driver, who then called 911, the driver of the Mercedes, because he had tried to get out and talk to Mohammed, but then he came at him with, with the mer- machete. Yeah. And so he got back into his vehicle and said, I don't, I'm letting you know I got in an accident, but I'm not leaving my vehicle. Yeah. Which was smart. And at that point, Mohammed took off again. Apparently his car was still in working order. Now he's nearing the Easton Township area. So if you're from Columbus, you probably know where that is. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, that's what, about two, three miles away? 
Yes, but it's all straight shot down the road. So it's basically right off the same road. It's just a very long road. Right. After Mohammed Barry fled the second scene, he was trailed and tracked by the police. Finally, they got a hold of him. Not a hold of him, but they found his car. Right. And they were following him. And as soon as they looked up his license plate in the process, they got an alert from their system saying that they needed to immediately contact the local terrorism task force because he was well known to them. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, it was probably a lucky thing that he hit that Mercedes because it slowed him down just a little bit. Oh, yeah, and they know which direction he went into. Yeah, so finally, the police were able to stop Barry's car after a successful pit maneuver forced him to crash against the curb at Easton Township. Wow. And he immediately jumped out holding both his machete and a fillet knife. They first tried to taser him multiple times. Multiple officers did successfully taser him, but he just kept running at them through it, and they were left with no choice but to shoot him, and he died there at the scene. Okay. So a little bit of backstory on Muhammad Barry. He was originally from Guinea in West Africa. He had moved to the U.S. as a teenager in 2000 with his family. Since then, he had been working in programming and IT, so he was just like a tech guy, that's what he did. He was unknown to the local law enforcement, however, Barry had been on a watch list from the FBI since 2012 when he was 26 years old, and they haven't released a lot of information on that, probably because they don't really want people to know what gets them on the list, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it seems like that was mostly due to radical statements he had made on message boards earlier in his life, and that kind of got him on the list. Yeah. Finally, in 2017, so a year after this whole attack happened, it was confirmed by the White House to be considered an act of terrorism against the owner of the restaurant. Absolutely. Whose name is Hanny Baransi. Okay. And that was because Hanny was Israeli, I already told you that. He was also a Christian Israeli, and that was where the problem seemed to have risen from. Oh, interesting. Hani did take pride in, obviously, his country of Israel, but he also was very adamant on being open and like a melting pot, his restaurant. He had over 20 employees that worked under him, and all of them were from a different faith or a different country, and he just welcomed everybody. And recently in his restaurant, he had gotten a big mural put up of a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian holding hands. Okay making the statement of this is a place for everybody, everybody's safe here, and yeah. they think that might have led to Mohammed seeing this and Okay, so for he did some reason he, he may not have known his actual faith. He just knew he didn't like that this guy wanted people to like each other. Yes, was welcoming everybody despite their history and what they believe to I come wonder together. what is it about some people that makes them have to hate everybody? I don't know. I don't understand it. I mean, you you come here from Guinea Mm-hmm. you're making a good life for yourself. Mm-hmm. He must have been pretty smart to be an IT tech guy. Mm-hmm. He's lived here since, well, 16 years at that time, right? Yeah. And you can't just find your own way in the world. You have to go out of your way to destroy people's lives for no reason. Yeah, it's not what like the hell? you moved here last year and you haven't really gotten to know people in the area. Like, you've lived here since you were, what, 14 years old? I don't know. I just don't understand. There are people that no matter what, they have to have somebody to hate. Mm -hmm. And there are Americans like that. There are people from other countries like that. Yeah. That's what terrorism is. It's like, I hate you. Mm -hmm. I don't care if I'm wrong about you. I don't care that I don't know anything about you. Yeah. But I hate you and I want to destroy you just because. 
And one thing I will say, if you search this or Hanny's name anywhere on the internet, you will find that he was treated very badly after the fact. Not the community for the most part. I feel like Gehanna was very welcoming and loving towards him and you know, they came together, raised money, and were supporting him through it. But the government itself would not classify it as a terrorism attack, and therefore he could not get any payout from the government in order to get therapy for his employees that were there. He couldn't get any money to fix up the place. He had to completely come in the next day and clean up the pools of blood himself. This poor guy just really got the brunt end of a lot of bad news. I mean, he's trying to be a diplomat for anybody who... Mm -hmm is looking for a place to be welcomed. Mm -hmm. And the government's like, well, screw you. Figure it out yourself. It wasn't classified as a terrorism attack until 2017 because he made such a stink of it and people got mad at him for it. But like, he was standing up for his employees. He was making sure they have a paycheck even while they're recuperating from this traumatic thing that happened. So the attack itself had lasted less than 10 minutes in the restaurant at least, but it did leave four people severely injured. Absolutely. Gerald and Debbie Russell, the couple at the front of the restaurant in the first attacked, neither had ever realized how injured they were as the first blows had severed the nerves in their hands. So luckily, they felt absolutely no pain during this experience. They were just confused. And then at the end, they realized their hands were very badly butchered. Absolutely. And I, I, you can look it up. They talk about their injuries and like what parts were hanging off and whatnot. I just chose to leave it. I can't stomach it. I know. Yeah, let's just put it this way. All fingers were saved, sewn back on. Even the ones where the arteries were cut, they were able to reattach them successfully. Are they functional? And they're functional. Oh, that's amazing. The only thing they're left to deal with is occasional tingling in their fingers just every once in a while from the nerve damage. Yeah. And then also the emotional scars from the attack. Now, they talk about how when they go out to eat now, they can't have their back facing the restaurant. They can't sit near the door. They can't... Well, that's how most people are. Most people will go into a restaurant and sit down far away from the door, Mm -hmm. facing the door. Yeah. Because they don't want to be caught by surprise. I mean, if somebody comes with a gun, if you're in the back, you do have an upper hand there where... Yeah. And it's unfortunate that in America we have to think about this kind of shit. Well, this comes from the gunslinger days Mm -hmm. where they would go into the saloon or whatever. Yeah, they'd sit in the saloon and if their local enemy was coming in to shoot them down, they wanted to see the guy before he saw them. That's true. So that's just... Instilled in you, yeah. That's kind of where I'm going to leave off with the couple. But they're doing well now. They're all healed up. Yeah, that's great. The third person that was attacked, Neil, I did not find any updates on him. It kind of seems like he was not mortally wounded. It was more of a That was slice. the guy that was hit by accident? By the backsling, yeah. So okay. it seems like he maybe had some stitches and maybe muscle injuries, but I think he wanted to stay private after that, so I'm going to respect that. Yep, that's his right. But the last person, the musician who's best friends with Hani, who was there that night to perform, Bill Foley. He had been struck three times in the head. Oh, His right hand had been sliced, which is detrimental to him as a musician who plays the guitar. Yeah. And he had been stabbed through his lung, which had collapsed. During the scuffle, he had been desperately trying to loosen Mohammed's grip on the machete to get it away from him. And he was just frustrated. And that was 
kind of what kept him going was he was so focused on getting this out of his hand he wasn't even worried about his injuries at this point right but he couldn't get it away from him and it was later revealed to him by the police that Mohammed had strapped it onto his wrist through like the handle of the machete and there was no way anybody was going to get it off without cutting the strap somehow or cutting his arm off yeah exactly so it was there was no chance he was ever going to get that off of him oh my god But Bill, he spent 11 days in the ICU afterwards and had obviously multiple reconstructive surgeries for his hand and then his facial wounds and whatnot. After that, he was paired with some physical therapists because he had to completely relearn everyday activities such as feeding yourself, you know. They actually told him, we don't think you're ever going to be able to play the guitar again. If you do, it's not going to be to the level where you were. And that was devastating for him. Of course it was. That would be devastating. His entire livelihood is just, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. However, after working diligently with his physical therapist, six weeks after the attack, Bill returned to Nazareth and was performing once again. Aw, so he came back and did he feel like he was back to his normal playing or was he just saying, this is my debut and I'm going to just do what I can to get get back from here? Well, I think the reason he came back, he kind of didn't want to, it sounds like, because of the trauma in reliving that every time you go there, I'm sure. Yeah. But he saw his friends struggling and people were trying to avoid this restaurant after this happened, even though statistically, you know, it's probably not going to happen twice at that restaurant. Well, and the guy that did it's dead, so... Exactly. So even though a lot of people in the area knew that was unrealistic to be afraid of this restaurant, it did hurt his profits quite a bit. Well, yeah. People are terrified of anything like that. They just want to stay as far away from it as possible. Yeah. So in order to help out his friend Hani, Bill decided to return and play another gig six weeks later at the restaurant in order to show people, look, I was the worst hurt and I'm still here coming back. So like, yeah. there's nothing to be afraid of What a good here. friend. I know. What a good friend. But he performed and over 200 people of the area came out <gasps> to support him. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Did they even have room for 200 people in that little it restaurant? It sounds like they did it right up front. People could sit and watch from their cars and stuff. (laughs) He was talking about it in one of his interviews, and he said he was nervous, and he said, I really struggled to hit those high notes at the end, but then I just realized they didn't care. They just wanted to support me. Well, nobody expected him to be on top of his game. They wanted to show him that, hey, we're here with you, and we'll be here as long as you need us. Yeah. So good for for them, good for him. Mm. Also, to help with his medical care, the community raised $42,000. Bill's doing good. (laughs) So how's the restaurant doing? Hini Baranzi himself struggled greatly, despite not being present during the attack. This restaurant had been his livelihood for the past 27 years. And, like I mentioned, is now a place of fear for the community. He opened back up four days later after the attack just for to-go orders so that he could keep paying his employees who were willing to come to work. Yeah. But unfortunately, he realized his staff was kind of more traumatized than they thought they were going to be by returning to the scene. And so, out of the goodness of his heart, this is how sweet of a person (laughs) this owner is. For several months, he ended up just closing down the place and said, out of my own pocket, I'll keep paying the bills and paying you guys, but you don't have to come to work. Aww. Yeah. They all needed therapy and they needed some self-reflection and they needed a little bit of time to process. Yeah, what a good guy. Which makes me even more mad that the government wouldn't come through. Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, it's obviously, obviously a terroristic act. I don't yeah. know how you could call that anything else. Yeah, he had to close it down, and he actually was very close to having to file bankruptcy after this. And all for something that was completely out of his hands. Not his fault. Through no fault of his own. Mm -hmm. It's just awful. But eventually later in 2016, a couple months later, he got back into the swing of things. And like I said, the community, they were coming together. They were still patronizing his restaurant, even if it was more of a to-go basis. They did what they could to support him. Yeah. And he kind of got the business back and profitable, back in the green again. However, in December of 2016... He was in a head-on collision. Holy crap. With someone fleeing the police after an armed robbery. And they, again, fled the accident scene. But Hani was gravely injured. Left him with a broken leg, arm, and his neck and spine. Christ, poor guy. He cannot Mm -hmm. catch a break. And then while he was in the hospital, it sounds like because of all of the financial stress and everything coming together, he and his wife ended up separating in early 2017. So he was just... Really fucking going through it. This poor sweet man. Yeah. But since then, Hanny and Bill have recovered together and put the attack behind them. And Bill is still coming. The restaurant is still open and thriving today. And Bill can be seen still once a week. We'll have to look up on the website what times, because I think they switch it out every week. But he still comes back and performs at Nazareth. Also, since then, the community came together and raised so much money for Hanny and Bill both that... They actually put that money into expanding the restaurant, and now they can hire more employees. Like it's, and it's not necessarily the same scene that it, it doesn't look like it used to be anymore. So okay. now I think that's helped everybody heal a little bit better. Yeah. So overall, so many years later, they are doing much much better <laughs> after this horrible thing happened. Yeah. But I wanted to end from the most recent quote I could find from Hani himself. He said. I'm very grateful to be here today. I'm very grateful that everybody that was involved is doing well today. We are living, we're talking, we're laughing, and there's a lot to be grateful for. Even though a bad thing happened, a lot of good things have come out of it. It's a very positive outlook to have on such a shitty, shitty string of events that happened in this poor guy's life. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that I wouldn't say that any of the things all the good things that came out of it were worth the thing happening. Yeah. But if they were going to happen, the fact that the community came together to support him, that people showed him that his efforts all these years and his diplomacy with the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. that all mattered. And he earned back Mm -hmm. all that good karma he'd been putting out into the world. Well, he was. He was like... I think most people in Gehenna have met him. If you've gone to this restaurant, then you have met him. Because ever since he's opened it, like I said, it's been there 27 years, 30-something now. But It had been 27 and 2016. In 2016, it had been there for 27 years. And he was one of those business owners where it wasn't like, oh, I come in once a day and then see how it's due and check the numbers and then I go home. No, he was working the dining area. He was, if you went there... And, Except the night of the attack. No, literally... That day, he was supposed to be working there until 6 o'clock, but around noon, he had a really bad migraine, and the employee told Hani to go home. He said, you are here every single day, every single day of the month, wow. all day long. You need to take a break and just go home, sleep off this headache, and then come back later if you really insist on it. And so that's what he did. He left for like a couple hours to go home and take a quick nap. Wow. And then woke up to this news. Wow. It's just mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. But 
if you ever go to this restaurant, and I highly recommend you do, because it's very good. Personally, I'm a big fan of <laughs> any kind of Middle Eastern food. You know, I had I had probably driven by Nazareth a hundred times, mm-hmm. but I don't think I ever stopped in there to have a meal. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had now, because it sounds like stuff I would love. I love yeah. Middle Eastern food. Yeah, he has the best hummus. He has grape leaves. You know, I love those. Oh, I love those too, if they're vegetarian. Mm-hmm. I think he makes them both ways. But then they also have, for meat eaters, <laughs> lamb kebabs that are amazing. So if you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, stop in at Nazareth mm-hmm. on um, Morse Road. No, it's on Hamilton Road, but it's right at the intersection of Morse and Hamilton. And I just recommend it because they're a bunch of really good people and he's a sweetie pie. I'm just glad that he's come through all of this and that he got through that car accident because that mm-hmm. sounds horrible. And it just still just shows what an amazing human he is that at the end of all of this, he's like, you know, I'm really lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a really lucky dude. <laughs> I think that people who have gone through the, the ringer like that, mm-hmm. either they're going to just crumble or they're going to stand up tall and they're going to say, okay, I got through that. I got this. Bring it. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> I got this. I can do it. I'm I'm strong. I've, I've made it through. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a great outcome on that. And it's terrible that that ever happened. As horrible as this was, it really could have been. Oh, yeah. A thousand times worse. And I'm so happy to hear that everybody's doing well. So I know it's a sad story and a horrible thing that happened, but it... Well, all of the survivor stories we tell are horrible yeah, stories. that's true. You're not that really should never them. happen to anyone. But mm-hmm. the difference is that someone comes out the other side and says, you know, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay. So I guess that is about the end of our personalized Ohio edition of episode 46. Yeah. Wow. That's funny that we both did mm-hmm. those close to home stories on the same Good. episode because we don't tell each other ahead of time. No, well, but we but... don't plan around each other's stories. So the fact that I did a Parma, Ohio story, and she mm-hmm. did a Gahanna, Ohio story on the same episode without planning that—that's kind of amazing. Yeah. And we will see you next week for episode forty-seven, assuming we can get our shit together and pull it off. <laughs> we'll <see. laughs> We've really been struggling this week. In the meantime, if you want to find us on any and all social media, actually, that's not true, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. That's right. We are not on TikTok, but we are on those other ones at True Crime B&B. Mm-hmm. And we have an email address if you would like to send us any case suggestions or corrections or just thoughts about things that are going on in your life or any kind of stories that have happened to you that you would like to tell someone. Yeah, something funny even. It doesn't have to be true crime related. We're open to anything. At this point, we'd really appreciate some funny stories. (laughs) Help us. Send Um, us a funny at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. As usual, we'll see you back on Friday. Next Friday. Next Friday. Thanks, guys. We love you, crime family. Bye. Bye. I don't like having half of my body exposed. I beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) My little nudist. This is the official sound check of episode 46. Where we have to talk like intellectuals. Our intellectual discussion of whether or not you're a nudist. I mean, yes. (laughs) Mabel had a sister named Mill. It's Millie, and I misspelled it. Dogs were brought in to try to tack, try to track the can, the blah, blah, blah. but there was no evidence to. Can you send us mommy? <laughs> Charles didn't do it. Come here. I would know. I'm reincarnated from Parma. I didn't know. 
I didn't know. Yeah, I don't really know how I ended up in Virginia. Maybe she wants to hop up and the wire's in her way, so I'm gonna... Come on. Hurry up, puss. Come You're on. messing up my ending. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's why they put in all those roundabouts. I'm sure it is. <laughs> They're like, all right. Come here. I'm excited. This is the problem with doing a story from where you're from. You're mm -hmm. like, and then they went by Dr. Joe's house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Dr. Joe wants to be brought into the machete killing guy. <clears throat> Nothing to see here, folks. <clears throat> She's on the sheep again. She's sitting up there judging us. <laughs> I don't know why this doesn't crush like my cave does. I've been waiting to crush it. I'm going to crush your sheep. I'm going to crush the sheep, but it's stronger than it looks. Yeah, it's because it's made of wood, puss. It's a wooden sheep. <laughs>